Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This is God's word. Please be seated. If you're a guest with us this morning, we pick a book of the Bible and go through it from start to finish. And uh, Christmas, you see, the whole Bible is written about the Lord Jesus from start to finish. It's all about the story of how God is redeeming a people to himself through Christ for his own glory. And so from Genesis to Revelation, everything is about Jesus. So every sermon is a Christmas sermon in a way. But we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at these three verses. And I want to just try to bring us up to speed a little bit and and remind you if you're a guest or tell you if you're a guest kind of what's going on. This letter was written to a group of Christians who happened to be Jewish during the period of the Roman Empire in the mid-60s AD when things were starting to get a little tough. Not a little tough. They were just a few years away from being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and burned at the stake by the thousands, uh, beheaded, imprisoned, and they had started to taste this by having their property confiscated. Some had already been thrown in prison, but the times were challenging and difficult. And so the writer was writing a letter to these people saying, stay the course. Don't turn back to your old way. That what you are running toward in your life in Christ is the glory of his presence in heaven. Stay the course. It's it's a challenging lesson for us because we're not quite at that place in our history. Maybe we'll be there soon. I don't know. It's hard to know. But we are to be encouraged to do the same things that they are charged with with as well. And so at this point in the letter, what he has been encouraging the people to do is run well the race that's been set before them. And in the last part of chapter 12, he's introduced kind of a new topic in a way. Verse 28 of chapter 12 says this, let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as a result, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And so he's he's stepped into this topic of worship. And last week, uh, if you were here, I asked uh, you to think a little bit about what comes to your mind when you think of worship. I didn't ask you to speak out loud or to tell me what you were thinking Most probably everything that people were thinking about were right and true and proper, but they may not have been complete. Because the writer here is introducing things that we would not ordinarily think of as worship. When he says, worship God 
with acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, what do we think of? We think of prayer and we think of music and we think of our personal time in God's word and being gathered with God's people on Christmas Day. But we don't think of a, a lot of things that he's going to introduce us to that idea. And so chapter 13, uh, to a large extent, says this is what reverence and awe look like in worship. Now, the word worship has come up throughout the book of Hebrews, and it's been used a number of times, and, and in all of those cases, save one, when the word worship was used, it referred to worship in a place, like the temple or the tabernacle, and, and it carried with it the idea of, uh, of a place and a priesthood and sacrifice and, and kind of a system that all went through it. And those are all things that are part of the Old Testament and part of what we call the Old Covenant. And, and all those things were right and true, but he's going to introduce ideas that don't have anything to do with a place or, or a man-filled priesthood or really even a system because what he's introduced these people to and us by encouraging us in our faith is the new covenant under Christ, the covenant of grace, which, which doesn't have, quote, a place because Hebrews and other places in the Bible tell us the people of God are his temple. And the book of Hebrews has spent a great deal of time telling us that Jesus is our high priest. And that when it comes to sacrifice, Jesus offered himself as sacrifice, and that sacrifice was once for all forever. And so, to a very large extent, some of the things that we may have thought of when we thought of worship, place, maybe priesthood, maybe a system, are, are something that have been set aside for a new priesthood in Christ, a sacrifice which is complete and final, and a temple in which we are a part that the Spirit of God dwells in. And so worship along with music and along with God's word and along with celebrating Christ's sacrifice adds new elements and new dimensions. I hope that that makes sense. And I mentioned this one more comment by way of introduction. It was not until the 13th century that our Bibles had chapters and verses. And, and they did that because you know, by and large, it made it easier for preachers. And, and for those people at that period of time, this was before the printing press, who could have a copy of the scriptures, it made it easier for them to reference certain places in the Bible. But the challenge with chapters and verses, because that's not the way they were originally written, is that it chops things up at times just a little artificially. Even things like periods and question marks weren't in the original text, you see. And so when I reference uh, verse 28 of chapter 12, th that whole idea is going to carry on through chapter 13. Chapter 13 is not a new idea 
when we get there, and so on and so forth. Now, with one other really technical comment, and I won't bore you with the details, the word worship, aside from uh, being seen in a place, is there, there are six Greek words that, that are, are used to talk about worship in the New Testament. I won't rattle through them and, and do that really hoity-toity thing and tell you what. But generally, all of them carry some of the same ideas. What does it mean to worship, you know? Uh, the, the idea of worship carries the idea of, of bowing oneself down prostrate before somebody greater than yourself. It can also uh, mean the idea of obedience and these kinds of things. It can carry with it the idea of sacrifice, giving up something on behalf of something else. And in those six words, it also means and carries with it the idea of service, particularly served God, to serve God. And we don't often think of that, I, I don't think, when we think of worship. What does it mean to serve God? And that's the word that's used here, is this idea of service to God. What? And so we ask ourselves, all right, how am I supposed to serve God in worship? And that's part what is going to be answered in the first three verses of chapter 13 that we're going to look at this morning. How does, what does it look like to serve God and consequently to worship God? And so in verse 1, we start out with this really nifty little sentence, let brotherly love continue. There you go. Let brotherly love continue. Probably some churches have slapped the Bible shut and say, there's your word for the day. Go have a Merry Christmas. Let brotherly love serve or continue. Brotherly love is the word that's used here, is the word from which we get Philadelphia. You know, the city of brotherly love. I don't know how many of you have been to Philadelphia. I didn't feel it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't my experience. The, the catchphrase for the town just was not exuding from their pores. And I think in part it's because people don't understand what brotherly love is and how it is defined in the scriptures. You see, not everybody in this room has a sibling. Okay? And, and so you don't have any concept of what brotherly love may look like in your brain. And if you do have siblings, you may not like them. I mean, that's the reality, isn't it? I mean, I mean I'm being truthful. Uh, and so you think, brotherly love, I don't have a concept and I don't understand what it means. And here, I want to say this at the outset, and the text is going to bear this comment out. Brotherly love here as it's introduced, will most predominantly be applied to the people of God. I'm not saying exclusively, and I'm not saying that we are not to have brotherly love for the folks who don't yet have a relationship with God through Christ. That is not what I'm saying. But our passage this morning predominantly is going to refer to how we treat the body of Christ. Okay? 
and I'll, and I'll demonstrate that in just a minute. But how does brotherly love look like? And how is it defined in the Bible? The heart of the brotherly love in the scriptures is this. And it may not be what we're thinking. The first thing is self-sacrifice on behalf of someone else. The second thing is expecting nothing in return. And the third is to see others as more important than ourselves. So the question is, why would the writer of the book of Hebrews tell these people at this time, let brotherly love continue? Why would this idea of self-sacrifice, seeing others as more important than yourself and expecting nothing in return, be such an important word for them and for us? And, and I will tell you why I think this is the case. When pressure is on, I think generally there are two responses among people, individuals and groups. The first is, and this is the, this is the nobler of the two, is that we recognize that we need one another. We recognize that I can be of service to somebody else, that we are united in idea, in faith, in this context, in our pursuit for holiness toward the end goal, and as a result, we, we draw together in a, in a wonderful fashion. The other response to pressure, and, and I'm sorry to say, at least in my experience, it's a little more common, is this. That when pressure comes, people have a tendency to become more isolated. And they have a tendency to be more concerned with themselves and theirs and to make sure that their little package of life is secure and an outward focus is diminished exponentially. And there can be very little doubt that for this small house church in 67 or 68, AD was feeling that kind of pressure. And, and so the thoughts may have been, I've got to make sure my family and me are taken care of first. I, I don't have time or energy or desire to gather with God's people again. I need to make sure that we're safe and secure. And that leads to an unintentional, perhaps, selfishness, where the needs of the people of God are ignored or getting second or third tier on the ladder and those kinds of things. And, and maybe we don't experience this yet in our culture, but, but we have brothers and sisters around the world who are facing that right now. And they will be faced with this kind of choice and this kind of decision, as were these first years, and maybe we will face this next year or the year after or whatever the case is, and we have enough pressure not to be 
isolated and self-interested now without pressure. And so let brotherly love continue. And then we get to verse 2 and it says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Wow, that's a, 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 an interesting verse. And if we just take it out of context, we can, and we, we can read that and say, well, that means I'm supposed to have an open door policy to in all, any and all comers and, and, and that, you know, my food is to be everybody's food and so on and so forth. And I'm not saying any of that is wrong. And I'm not saying that some have not been led to that. But as I mentioned at the outset, the context in which we find this is generally and most predominantly speaking about how we treat the body of Christ. Not just this group and not just the group that was here last night, but the body of Christ universal. How are they treated? And let me tell you why I can say that with, with greater confidence. Earlier in the chapter, I'm sorry, earlier in the book, in chapter 11, verse 13, this was said. And, and chapter 11 was the chapter which we call the Hall of Faith. You know, it's filled with this litany of names of people who did it right and completed the course and so on and so forth. But it says, These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. You see, the language of Hebrews is very consistent. When it speaks of strangers, it is speaking of those who belong to God through Christ, who are living in a hostile environment, this earth, waiting for what Christ has provided at the end of time. We are strangers and exiles. Now, we've gone through this a number of different times in different ways. We don't feel like strangers most of the time. I don't. I feel like this is home for me, where I'm supposed to feel like a stranger and an exile living in a hostile world. So when this, and we'll see this played out a little bit more in just a moment, but, but, uh, but when he says, show hospitality to strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unaware. That's a great little phrase, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but to these hearers, the Jewish readers, they would have instantly thought of Genesis. Well, they wouldn't have thought of Genesis 18 because it didn't have chapters and verses. But they would have thought of the story of Abraham. And when Abraham was visited by three guests, two of whom were angels and one was the Lord showing himself, and they came to Abraham to say that you were going to have a son. And then they left from there and brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham, in, in good faith, saw that they were part of the community of faith when they showed up and showed them exorbitant hospitality and, and took care of them. Now, what I want to say is this. Our motivation for showing hospitality to the community of faith is not on the off chance that an angel is going to knock on our door wanting lunch. That is not why we show this hospitality. We show this hospitality, why? Because 
brotherly love is to continue. You see? That's the motivating factor and the focus. And so what does hospitality look like? It's, it's infinitely more than a meal. It may not be a meal. It may not be a feast. It may be compassion. It could be rest. It could be a kind word. It could be a display of empathy in a moment when a stranger needed something that could not be provided by anybody outside the community of faith, you see. And so it's an extraordinary thing. But before we get off of this idea and, and to make sure that you um, understand that I'm not being a heretic when I talk about this being predominantly for the people of God, Jesus spoke of this explicitly. In Matthew chapter 25, and if you want to turn there, I'm going to read a passage there. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking about the end of time. And he's speaking about judgment day. And some of the things upon which people were going to be judged. And so I'm going to read chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. But listen to the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and they will separate people one from another as, sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and he'll place the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepare for you, uh, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answered them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Christ is very explicit here in his definition of hospitality. It's not a comprehensive list. It's an example of what hospitality can look like. And by the way, this hospitality is what worship looks like. You see? And it's to be done to the brothers. And when you do it to the brothers, you do it to me. And this is worship. What an extraordinary thing. Now back to our text. And remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. You see, that concept is continual throughout these three verses. Now, 
this is a bit of a stretch for us because right now we likely do not know anybody who is in prison for their faith. But we know of people who are in prison for their faith. And I was so grateful for Andy's prayer during the congregational prayer because he prayed for those people without any prompting by me, you see. But I thought about this earlier in the week and I thought, I don't pray for those who are in prison for their faith the way that I should. And I don't pray for those who are mistreated. They are part of the body of Christ of which I claim to be. They are as much a part of my faith in Christ as you, dear friends, are. Now, we do have those who are mistreated. Right now, the mistreatment comparatively is minor. Comparatively. Doesn't feel that way to us. But is my empathy and my hospitality and brotherly love demonstrated to those in a fashion that says, I'm there with you? Because this is what worship looks like, you see? To do that, to, for me, to not just merely say I'm sorry, but to, to come alongside somebody who's struggling at work or in a relationship because of their faith in Christ, or to come alongside someone who needs something I have to offer and I expect nothing in return, and to think of them as better than myself and to offer them all that I have in Christ is worship. That's a different definition, isn't it? It's a vastly different definition. But Jesus says, when you do this to them, you do this to me. That's worship. The Lord Jesus is given honor when I demonstrate a selfless, humble, brotherly love, when I demonstrate hospitality as simple as a glass of water, and when I pray for a brother and sister in Christ who is being mistreated or who is in prison as if I were there. That is worship of our King and of our God. I think I, application is a tricky bit of business because we'll leave and the world's going to explode when we leave here. You know, it, it's going to. These motives are the motives that need to be checked daily for the rest of my life. It's how I live. It's how I breathe. It's, it's how I worship. And it's extraordinarily humbling. So let me pray. 
Father, I, I am not in prison and I am not mistreated. And I confess that I don't love my brotherly, uh, my brothers and sisters around the world with the brotherly love that I am called to here in the scripture. And tangibly, I cannot meet their needs, but I can bring them before your throne. And so we do that here this morning. We lay our brothers and sisters here and around the world at your feet saying, Father, bring to them the supremacy of Christ so that they may finish well the course that you've set before them. And Father, for those of us here who don't face those challenges, may we love with a brotherly love and show hospitality to the saints as we should to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.